It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and a vibes-based economy. One of the things that I am the most concerned about is the intergenerational injustice. We cannot have a Canada where the rising generation is shut out of the dream of home ownership if that's the way they want to build their lives. Today we'll break down the first two chapters in the budget, and they're big ones. First, housing, the thing we all dream of having but can no longer afford. And economic growth, the thing we all think is a solution to our problems, but is it? Joining me this week from Vancouver, Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at the Simon Fraser University. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. From Ottawa, Murad Hamadi, policy and tech reporter for The Logic. Hey. Also in Ottawa, because this is a budget episode, and making his debut appearance on the backbench, David Moscrop, author of the book Too Dumb for Democracy and columnist at a bunch of places. Thank you for having me. Let's get into it. So this budget, it's just over 300 pages long with nine chapters. So there's a lot of words and numbers, but we have to get into it. The federal budget is one of the most important policy documents a government puts out. Through their budget decisions, our elected leaders fulfill their constitutional responsibilities, signal their policy priorities, and manage the country's wallet. Now, we can't get into the entire 2022 budget in one episode, but it does include many of the topics we've discussed on the show recently, things like healthcare, climate change, and reconciliation. Today, though, we're going to start at the top. Literally imagine us opening this budget document. Ready? Chapter 1, Making Housing More Affordable. 
Now, this is obviously a major issue in Canada right now. House prices have gone up about 20% in the last year alone, creating serious inequity between generations. The Liberal government has a bunch of ideas on how to make housing more accessible and affordable. And these include double the pace of home building in Canada in the decade ahead, support those already struggling with housing, for example, by creating a tax-free first home savings account for first-time buyers, and limit profit-making in the sector by disincentivizing house flipping, freezing foreign buyers, except under specific circumstances. There's also incentives to create rent-to-own units, affordable housing, and a proposal to create a home buyer's bill of rights with the goal of stopping practices like blind bidding on houses. So, David, let's start the conversation with you. Does the government's plan make housing more affordable? I don't think so. I don't think any government's plan is going to make housing more affordable. We've been talking about this for a very long time. There have been policy interventions, municipally, federally, provincially, for, for years, uh, they don't make housing more affordable. You might talk about making it accessible. That opens the question of accessible for whom. But affordable, not so much, because here's the thing. To make housing more affordable, you need uh, wages to go up or prices to come down or both. And I guess my question is, what politician is going to tamper with the equity of Canadian homeowners who make up a sizable portion of the voting block? Who's going to do that? The answer is no one, I don't think. So they try to do this thing where they say, we're going to build, 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 lots of supply, and we're also going to pour some gas on the demand fire, which is what this budget does. It does simultaneously tries to feed the supply side, but also tries to ramp up demand because they want people to be able to buy a house. And so I, I don't think it's going to do what the government says it's going to do. That's not a uniquely liberal problem or a federal problem, but I, I have very little faith that this is going to do much. What's interesting that you frame it that way, and I note the first line of this chapter, which says that everyone should have a safe and affordable place to call home. Caroline, how do you see the government framing this housing conversation in this chapter? David actually mentioned a lot of the things that I wanted to hit on. I mean, I think of it in a way as government kind of putting their foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. It comes down to economics 101 a lot of the times with a lot of complex issues and it's a supply and demand thing. And when you're adding to pressures that can actually increase demand while at the same time increasing supply, do you not just end up where you were before? And to your exact question in terms of the framing, it is interesting um, when you describe things as a home, you know, I don't think they're necessarily trying to say, you know, everyone needs to own a home or everyone needs to rent a home. They're trying to basically say it's out of reach for everybody on all fronts. So people just need to be able to call a place home. Um, but I do think broadly, a lot of the government's housing stuff in the budget falls into probably two categories, inadequate and counterproductive. And the tax-free first home savings account would be one of the ones that I would say is counterproductive because you're really, well, potentially at least driving up home prices even higher by really driving that demand. I don't know if you saw Jen Gerson's article last week that I think spoke to a lot of people's frustration around the housing file. And she said, like, none of the measures that any government proposes are ever actually about addressing the prices. They're about providing taxpayer funded supports to help young people keep up with the delusional price increases. And I was like, yeah, like, that's exactly what they're doing. Murad, jump in here. Like, how is the government framing housing and can we build our way out of this crisis? Let me be the one to claim the territory in a budget episode of a budget is a marketing document. (laughs) 
someone was going to say it and I wanted to get there first. So, you know, it is interesting that this is chapter one. Mike Moffat, an economist writing out of the Smart Prosperity Institute, points out the government says we need to double our building target uh, over the next decade. So he estimates that to be 1.9 million homes over that period of time. But the measures in the budget themselves add up to supply of 100,000 homes. So that is 5%. Now, it is interesting to see basically a whole bunch of politicians at the federal level ending up on the same solution, even if the sort of tone and framing of their rhetoric is sort of different and different by degrees. So the biggest, I think, dollar value, if I'm reading it correctly, in the budget for housing is this housing accelerator fund, which basically ties uh, infrastructure funding and transit funding to municipalities basically changing zoning or changing regulation that they control in order to enable housing. Basically, if you make it easier to build houses within your jurisdiction, we will give you money from this accelerator fund. That is not dissimilar to what Pierre Polyev is proposing on the campaign trail, even if his rhetoric is of a different tone. Scott Aitchison, who will come fourth or fifth or something in the conservative leadership race, is going a step further and saying, I'm going to tie all housing-related funding to zoning reform. Zoning reform is where this thing happens, and zoning reform is a municipal issue. So the accelerator fund is going to move the needle who knows, but the, the extent the needle can be moved according to the federal government itself is 100,000 houses out of a 1.9 million target. That's off by an order of magnitude, right? Self-evidently. The other thing I wanted to point to was the tax-free um, savings account change that uh, Carolyn uh, referenced there. She's absolutely right. You know, that is adding to uh, price appreciation in the sense that it's giving people more money. But let's look at the actual amount. It's $40,000. I know there are other places in the world than Toronto, but I happen to be looking up Toronto house prices for something else I was doing. The average price of a detached home is $1.33 million last year. So $40,000 is like the change that falls out of my pocket when you're talking about a $1.33 million home, right? Like, what? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to save a few thousand dollars on tax on that forty grand, uh, and it will get me maybe a fifth of the way to a down payment? Not a, even. On, uh, yeah, exactly. This is all to say, like, we're talking about sort of pennies on the dollar of any solution. I think I would add that to the counterproductive and inadequate bucket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why are all government officials on the same page about how to address this if it is so counterproductive? David? <laughs> Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, Let me make a very brief point regarding supply, and then I'll answer that. We're talking, when it comes to non-market and affordable housing, of that 100,000, a pittance, right? There's a really good co-op bit that I don't want to let skate by because they're reallocating some money, both funding and and loans, to build co-ops, which is great. We need many, many more of those units, but we're talking like 6,000 here. And something like 6,000 affordable homes. So 12,000 in that bucket, which is just a joke. But, you know, governments do this because they want people to be able to afford a home and they don't want to tank anybody's equity. And so they'd say, well, what can we do? Well, we can build more stuff, which is good. And we can give people more money. So that's it's a slam dunk. Because we'll say, oh, the government's going to give me money. That's great. And oh, they're going to build more houses. That's great. 
and nobody's going to lose any money. Everybody gets everything they want. It's perfect. Even though, you know, like the physics of it doesn't add up. (laughs) That's basically why you do it because it's great politics, but it doesn't really address the problem. And so it sort of lets you off the hook. The federal government actually often people try to defend it by saying they've got no role, but as we've seen the budget, they do have a role. They have the extraordinary power of the CMHC, the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation that can do quite a bit. So there's, there's a role for every government here. The fact is that nobody wants to be the one to tank anybody's equity. Uh, It would cause a crisis because we have become a nation of housing speculators. We don't have pensions anymore. We have houses. And to truly solve this problem, my argument is you need to decommodify and de-financialize housing, which, by the way, is something the liberals touch on very lightly in this budget. When they talk about corporations, they're going to review it as an asset class, housing. But, you know, that's what you got to do. But that's so fundamentally contrary to what we have come to think of as housing in this country and the role of housing, and so fundamentally contrary to the nature of capitalism in this country, that no one's going to touch it. And so we end up in this conundrum. And it's like Groundhog Day, but not as funny. David, can you break down the asset class housing? Like, what does that mean? The specific thing that they want to do is launch what they call, and I'm quoting here, a federal view of housing as an asset class in order to better understand the role of large corporate players in the market and the impact of, on Canadian renters and homeowners. So basically, they want to say, like, okay, like how should we be assessing and taxing the purchase and sale of housing as a commodity when, with you know big commercial renters who are buying up large swaths of properties, thousands at a time, and renting them out? Like you can imagine that going somewhere. I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. <laughs> you know, I think they just throw that to us like, no, no, we're working on it. In the same way that they've gone ahead and said, you know, we're going to ban foreign buyers and, and we're going to start charging flipping tax, right? But they are kind of like poking around the edges of the problem in true liberal fashion. But the question is, are they going to go all the way on something like saying, actually, you know what? You as a corporation, as a real estate investment trust, as a rentier corporation, we're going to tax you more aggressively or we're, or we're going to limit the supply that you can you can actually hold and so on and so forth. I don't think they're going to do that. I looked up statistics for this, and I know Murad brought up some, but Canada has far fewer housing units per person than any other developed country. Recent estimates suggest Canada is about 1.8 million homes short of the G7 average. Over the past 20 years, we've built around 200,000 new housing units per year. And at the current rate, it would take years, maybe decades of steady construction just to bring Canada's housing stock up to the level seen in other, quote unquote, Western countries. And David, you brought up the power that the CMHC, you know, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has. They estimate Canada will need to build at least 3.5 million new homes by 2031. This budget does not get us there, if my math is right. (laughs) And you also talked about how the liberals are poking at the edges of the issue, are the conservatives doing anything differently? Caroline? Yeah, I mean, I think the the conservatives, some of what they're proposing are along similar lines. But at the same time, I think Pierre Polyev, for example, made big waves when he released his housing video that I'm sure most people have seen by this point because it was pretty popular. Why is it that Vancouver has the third most unaffordable housing market on planet Earth ahead of Manhattan, Los Angeles, London, England, and even Singapore, all places with more money and people but less land? He was calling out essentially the municipal approval processes, right? So it's not just approvals, inspections, building codes. He was suggesting that housing regulation costs per unit or something around, you know, I think it was over $600,000. And and there's been some questions about whether or not that's accurate for every property. But I do think he's not wrong about the incredibly arduous approval processes. I don't know if this number is still accurate, but it rings about right. 
is that in Vancouver alone, at least when I was talking about this a couple of years ago, there are about 100,000 units just in the approval processes. Private investors want to build this stuff. They're just so held up uh, through lengthy permitting and all those kinds of things. So there's no shortage of private sector money that wants to build stuff. I do think that there's a real problem when it comes to actually getting those shovels in the ground. And then there's a whole other question, who's actually buying those? And there's all the things about pre-sale flipping and, and assigning contracts and investors owning you know, a huge proportion of the homes as opposed to regular people who are really needing those homes. So once you actually get the supply built, there's those other questions. But David makes a really good point is who wants to be the party who actually fixes the problem? Because fixing the problem does affect people's equity. People with those assets make up a huge proportion of the population. Uh, and so then they do things like tinkering around the edges. And I'd love to go on to the discussion about the two-year ban on purchases of residential real estate by foreign buyers. But I know that Murad wants to jump in, so I'll let him do that, and then maybe we can come back to that after. Well, that's actually where I was going to jump in. So uh, we are in sync today. There's a point I want to make about it that will seem like a marginal point, but it's important to the second part of our show today on growth. So the wording of this thing as it's in the budget would prohibit both foreign commercial enterprises and people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents from acquiring non-recreational residential property in Canada for a period of two years. So that does not count, you know, if you come to this country as what used to be called a landed immigrant, which is a permanent resident, that's what the word immigration typically means in the Canadian context, you're fine. But if you come as a high-skilled worker who's here on a work permit and intends to transition to permanent residence and or you are an international student, you cannot, under this as it's written, plainly, uh, you can't buy a house. So what does that do to our retention of these people? I mean, if you are a software developer making, you know, over $100,000 a year and you land in Canada, you have just been sentenced to rent for two years unless you can find some kind of workaround. Or longer. Or longer. Undoubtedly, it is true that people coming in with those kinds of wages or that kind of wealth will drive up house prices across the board. But they are being excluded from the housing market determinately. And those are the kinds of people that the government has said and businesses have said uh, that they want to bring to Canada and retain for the sake of our overall economic growth. So here we get back to the sort of like <laughs> in Kevin's line of inadequate or counterproductive, you know, that, that may be true within the scope of the housing debate, but there are also measures that they can take that might be counterproductive to other economic goals that we have that are not simply tied to the financialization of real estate as our economic driver. Like that's the thing that they need to think about. One other thing that I wanted to point to, um, Densification is another thing that I don't know that we talk enough about uh, in terms of Canadian housing policy. Like I grew up in a city which looks nothing like the cities of Canada, much more dense, much more apartment focused, far fewer houses with lawns. There are undoubtedly advantages to that. But listen, I turned out mostly okay, and I grew up (laughs) without my own backyard. You know, urbanization and densification, these are things that like need to happen and zoning policy don't allow them to happen. So another thing that I think we need to think about is changing our idea of a home from the sort of idea of a detached or a semi-detached house to not just condos for yuppies with no kids in downtown cores, but like apartment complexes, things that allow family living without necessarily the geographic and uh, square foot footprint that this country is accustomed to. David, what's our takeaway? Should Canadians give up on the dream of home ownership, look for other models? Should we be pushing politicians to think differently, do things differently? What should we keep in mind? Well, two things. I mean, one, 
to build off your your point right there, uh, the quality of our housing is tied to the quality of our cities. And the idea that we have to extract all of the, of the happiness and fulfillment uh, where, where to be allotted in this life from our house and our backyard is absurd. We need to be talking about spaces where communities can gather, uh, park spaces, uh, transit, uh, you know, sort of like third spaces in public that are welcoming to people, but but ultimately as many public spaces as we can get so that we can have, you know, communities in, in places that where people can congregate outside of a, of a private home that we say has to be extraordinarily large because that's where we spend all our time, pandemic notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. So we need to rethink our cities. And point two is um, housing uh, ought to be a, a, a positive right that everyone uh enjoys it is a fundamental need that goes along with with breathing and eating and drinking uh, it, it's extraordinarily important and that's why we need to be talking about you know the definancialization and decommodification of housing to the extent that it's possible you know under the current system and that includes this, this always gets left out of the conversation but that includes non-market housing and public housing they're absolutely non-negotiable parts of any housing strategy, and they're always marginalized if they're addressed at all. Having them exist in, in spaces where we can gather outside of the house is extraordinarily important. And by the way, you would think conservatives would like that because it's a community builder, and conservatives used to at least pretend to care about community. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Murad? Last year, I turned 30 and had a bit of a, I call it a quarter life crisis. And last weekend, I went to a real movie theater and I watched everything everywhere all at once. And it was profound and absurd. It is perhaps the best movie I have ever seen. It sort of situates an existential crisis for both what's happening on screen and yourself within the context of this like hyper-saturated, incredibly violent, and slightly surreal, not slightly, very surreal sort of aesthetic. I can't describe it to you without spoiling it. And also, I really just can't describe it to you. So this is mostly just a recommendation. Go watch that movie. The R rating on it is very accurate. Do not go with your parents. Do not go with your children. Maybe go alone. I watched it alone. But watch that movie. It is incredible. It both reactivated and resolved my quarter-life crisis. I'm a changed person. Not a point of order, but... Thank you for this harrowing look into your tortured soul and bringing movies into a politics show. I need a distraction. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Caroline? Well, I'm going to bring up 
Pierre Polyev again, because I haven't mentioned him enough in my previous segment. I apologize, <laughs> but I thought of this before we started the show and then I mentioned him more than I thought. But anyway, we all know his thing about how he's so-called, you know, quote, running for prime minister, even though that's not, a, I think, a strictly accurate characterization of how the system works. Uh, and then there's all these people who are sort of think it's like a really big flex to say, you know, actually in Canada, we don't run for prime minister. That's not how our system works. And to most people, it's like, whatever, right? Like this guy is talking to me in terms I actually use. And he's talking about the system in a way that kind of makes sense to me, even if it is not strictly accurately how it works. And everyone's surprised when they show up to hear more, right? I'm running for prime minister rather than I'm running to be a leader of the party who holds the confidence of the house that then puts me in the position of prime minister, which is how the system technically works. Put that on a poster. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I remove the gatekeepers rather than removing you know, burdensome regulation or grow paychecks, not debt instead of fiscal responsibility. He is talking about things in ways that people do relate to, like him or not. And I just think there's something kind of hilarious about these people who are kind of chuckling loftily and nudging each other on, on Twitter about like things like the confidence convention when it comes to selecting our leaders, uh, while also looking like totally mystified about Poliev's appeal on populist grounds. Not a point of order, but honestly, it's fascinating to watch. And I would like uh, better slogans from all of them with the accuracy that you have pleasantly described in this point of order. Point of order, Madam Speaker. What is your point of order, David? Within the Westminster parliamentary tradition, it is an extraordinarily serious offense to mislead parliament. And yet I hear parliamentarians echoing those outside the House use the term the left. Over and over again, the left, backdoor socialist left, the left is coming. The left wants to this, the left wants to that. And yet, Madam Speaker, the left in this country doesn't even exist. I've never seen them. Have you seen them? Have any of the honorable members? No, they've never seen them because they don't exist. There is no left. It's an extraordinarily serious breach, indeed contempt, to talk about the left when it just simply doesn't exist. So here's what I propose. either. Those members who use the word the left withdraw the comment and apologize, or that someone somewhere decides to create a left in this country. But in the meantime, I think we should get the left out of our mouths. Um, not a point of order, but Moscrop for left? Moscrop for the left party. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> I'm just saying everyone's a liberal in this country. And go home to your rental, your tiny shoebox rental. Go home to your non-park, no-park space. Don't ride the bus because you can't get one and it takes forever to get there and think about what I just said because it's true. <laughs> now let's move on to chapter two of this year's budget. Oh my God, there's more? A strong, growing, and resilient economy. Now we've had two, <laughs> tough two years, uh, you may have noticed. A lot of people lost work. A lot of businesses had to shut down or scale down. We had record levels of government spending on health measures as well as programs like CERB and workplace supports. And now a lot of people are feeling pinched. We've touched on this a bit on the show before. Inflation recently hit 5.7%, the highest it's been since the early 90s. So there's this desire to get the country going again. Insert engines revving sound here and get back to quote-unquote normal. Whether that's even possible or what that means, well, let's look at the budget. This chapter gets into things like supports for small businesses and tourism's increasing access to high-speed internet in rural and remote areas, investments in high-frequency rail, critical mineral strategies, and weirdly specific things like strengthening Canada's semiconductor industry, 
funding the Canadian High Arctic Research Station and revitalizing East Montreal, things that will apparently help us all grow. Now, recent projections from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development suggest Canada will be the slowest-growing developed country over the next decade. Murad, I counted. There are 51 instances of the word innovation and innovative in this chapter. That's more than the word growth. And this includes the creation of a new Canadian innovation and investment agency. Briefly... Walk us through what the government plan to grow here is. I'm talking like Cliff Notes level, dude. So there's an agency and a fund. The agency basically is meant to help companies in all sectors be more innovative. Let's park that for a second. Then there's the fund, which is probably $15 billion. More to come on that maybe in the coming weeks. That will lend or invest money in uh, major projects in areas like uh, decarbonization of industry or uh, supply chain, stuff like that. And the idea is that essentially, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to use sort of a dirty word in talking to people who don't do policy about policy, which is productivity. Productivity is basically economy-wide. It's sort of the uh, amount of output we get out of uh, every worker at the industry level. It's about the same. Canada's productivity has, uh, it's a good thing this is a visual medium, uh, been going down into the left. I'm indicating with my hand. Uh, down into the right. It's been dropping. It's been declining or stagnant for about 30 years now. Uh, and what that basically means is we're putting more or the same amount of inputs in, that's raw materials, labor, whatever else, and, and economy-wide, we've been getting less out. When we talk about growth in real GDP, essentially what you need to do is make the economy as a whole more productive. That's how you get better quality of living. That's how you get quality of life. That's how you get higher wages and so on. The government's acknowledging that problem the productivity drop problem. And their solution to it is essentially to encourage businesses to invest, to put money into projects and R&D, a thing that they have not been doing historically at the same levels as their peers in the OECD via this fund and this agency. And a bunch of other bits and pieces around the edges because you know every budget is 700 things for 700 different constituencies. So that makes sense. I guess my question then is, David, I'm someone who hates growing up. I recently turned 30, hate it. Does the economy always have to grow? And is what the government's proposing the right way to do it? Wow. <laughs> I feel like I'm being baited here. Well, uh, Listen, it's an honest question. Well, it's a great question. It's also the fundamental question of, of the last few centuries, pretty much going back to the Industrial Revolution. Well, the economy has to grow under capitalism or capitalism collapses, right? If we're going to have a capitalist society, then the economy must always grow. Uh, those who support degrowth or who support uh, limiting cycles of consumption say, well, that's a capitalist thing. You know, for all of human history, except for the last several hundred years, that hasn't been the case. So we don't really have to organize that way. That's just the way we organized. So the answer is, if under the current model, the answer is it has to, yes. Under imagined other models, uh, the answer is not necessarily. Turning it back to a more, I think, pressing question is, can it? Can we afford the economy to continue to grow in the way that it has? Uh, 
And if you look at the budget in this chapter, you see a lot of investments. Oh, in fact, corporate handouts, by the way, because the market needs corporate handouts to do the things that it, it says it'll do anyway. Um, you know, in securing supply chains and investing in things like critical mineral and resources, right? Uh, that seems to me to indicate that we're going to keep up traditional supply chains, even as we quote unquote sort of green the mining industry. Can we afford to do that for the next 100 years if we want to keep the world from getting to 1.5 or 3 degrees of warming? It's not obvious to me that we can and not all end up, you know, fighting and dying in the climate wars, which is something that, you know, increasingly worries me because the skirmishes have already started. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because among the many, many, many funds that this chapter talks about. I'm talking about like obscurely named funds. There's the Strategic Innovation Fund, the National Trade Corridors Fund to make Canada's transportation infrastructure, and the Canada Community Revitalization Fund. There is a new one, the Canada Growth Fund, $15 billion provided by a quote-unquote arm's-length agency to, and I'm quoting, stimulate growth in low-carbon industries and help with the country's transition to net zero. Caroline, based on your understanding of this fund and, and what the you know this chapter gets into when it comes to you know growing while also delivering climate change commitments, are the two possible? I think it's possible to grow and meet climate change commitments if it's done in the right way. Going back just a little bit to the last segment, I want to weigh in on the the growth piece, though, just in general. I mean, is economic growth good and do we need it? I would say absolutely. I mean, as long as the population of the world increases, you need wealth to grow with it. And for that, you need the economy to grow with it. I was looking up the numbers. And since I was born, since we all are talking about our ages, and I'm going to date myself a little bit. But when I was born, the world's population was 4.8 billion. Now we're at 7.8 billion. That's like around a billion people per decade that I've been alive. And if you don't have wealth growing with that, then it's just simple mathematics. Standard of living goes down, wealth goes down, quality of life goes down. So we want growth. Uh, and as long as we're going to keep increasing our population, we have immigration targets of, I think, 1.2 uh, million over the next uh, three years, if I'm not wrong, then you want to you wanna keep that uh, economy pumping along with it to make sure that everybody can have a good standard of living. So it's figuring out a way that you can do it uh, that's sustainable. And that makes sense uh, from, a, from a climate perspective and from a whole host of other perspectives uh, as well. And Fatima, you mentioned just kicking this off, our standing sort of in the world. There's a chart, it's chart number 28 in the federal budget that looks at real GDP growth per capita predicted over the next four decades uh, based on OECD numbers. Canada's ranking is for 38 out of 38 countries. Like, it's not good. So yeah, we need growth in the innovation sector. We need growth in the uh, semiconductor industry. We need growth everywhere. We need to be looking at what we can do to encourage investment, boost productivity, to use the, the, the bad word that Murad mentioned earlier. And yeah, improving supply chain infrastructure is another thing that the, the government talks about. I think that's critical. It's good. Their critical mineral strategy is also another uh, really important one. But it's, it's, you know, I did literally laugh a little bit out loud when I was reading the budget and I saw them talking about that particular strategy uh, and saying, you know, oh, well, you know, one of the factors that's Im impacting this critical industry is lengthy regulatory processes as if they have nothing to do with that. Like I get like the complex geographical terrain and the fact that you have to like pull minerals out of the ground on like the sides of a mountain or something like that all makes sense to me. But lengthy regulatory processes is directly in their purview. And they can fix that and they haven't, right? So 
since this government's been in power, you've seen them add things like the gender-based analysis plus to the resource sector, which means people get to figure out how, you know, systemic inequalities and this and that, which are good things to think about. But these proponents are trying to figure that stuff out while they're trying to like literally just like pull some resource out of the ground. Of course, it makes sense that the, the, on a more broad perspective, you're going to want to be consulting and engaging and involving First Nations, for example. You're going to want to make sure that you're work camps don't have adverse impacts on nearby communities, like all the things you're supposed to study. But when you're adding significant additions onto regulatory processes, when you're adding stop the clock uh, provisions for the government to just take longer, basically, to study things, when you're increasing the likelihood of referrals to joint review panels, it all is part of the same sort of puzzle. And I worry that they're they're picking and choosing things that sound really good and are more palatable politically without actually addressing some of the big problems that they need to be doing that they're actually responsible for. Well, okay, we've been talking very high level, right, about growth and stuff, but how does it actually filter down to me and and you and all the listeners? Like, inflation is so high right now. Things like groceries and gas are getting so expensive. The government's plans for growth in this specific budget, how does it help better, improve, change the lives of Canadians who are just, you know, looking at the economy and just seeing the price of you know, the things that they purchase day to day or or the, the wages that they earn and, and so forth. David? Does it? I, I, I don't know. I'm asking you. I don't. I have no idea. I, I genuinely have no idea. You know, point one is that we shouldn't overestimate the degree to which the federal government can on their own tame, you know, inflation when it's driven by factors in part outside of our own borders, including the price of energy globally, right? There are things that the federal government can do. They can offset. Uh, You can make the argument that government spending into the economy is driving part of it. No doubt it's driving some of it. But look around the world at what economists are saying in this country and elsewhere, that it's, it's energy prices. There's very little you can do overnight about energy prices globally, even if you're talking about long term investment in energy in this country. So there's only so much the federal government can do in the first place is point one. You know, they can't just pick and choose the price of gas, for instance. That seems to be the theme of the show. (laughs) But here's the thing. The point is that a lot of the problems we face are conditioned by global factors for which we have very few and limited tools to deal with. And two, a lot of this stuff is municipal and, and provincial. Okay, but then what's the point of this budget then? If the government doesn't have control over housing and it doesn't have control over economic growth and how it can better the economy for me to earn more and buy a house and live my best life, then what's the point? Of- the federal government has a role in, in, in almost any area. It's just that it can't do everything on its own. It can spend into areas. It can convene and work with provinces and municipalities and its global uh, allies and competitors and so on. But it just can't dictate things, right? It has to set priorities, you know, produce programming and spend into those areas. And then it's going to take time to produce results, right? Unless you're just going to send people money, which is what we did during the pandemic, which is not what this budget does. In fact, this budget does the opposite. So it basically says the pandemic, the extraordinary moment of the pandemic for all intents and purposes for the budget is over. We're going back to normal. Uh, We're going to work on shrinking the debt to GDP ratio. We're going to go work on shrinking the deficit and later the debt. We're going to spend into areas of innovation so that we increase growth. Uh, But that's what the federal government does in this country, unless it wants to talk about remaking the nature of the economy, which it doesn't. So I don't know if it's going to do anything or not. We won't know for some time. Inflation is predicted to come down on its own in some time. But you know what? We were told that six months ago. So I don't even know what to believe on that front anymore. I certainly don't trust the government or trust the Bank of Canada on that necessarily. 
They, they could very well be wrong about that. I think we're caught in a cycle that we're just going to see repeat over and over and over again. I just want to unspool the logic of what would be the response to your, the question you asked, David, which is, so the government puts money into programs. Programs help businesses to do things, whatever they're doing, grow, mm-hmm. uh, sell more, export more, whatever. That creates demand for workers with particular sets of skills. That drives up wages. That increases the people's ability to afford the life that they want. At the same time, that increases the profitability of these businesses, which drives tax revenue, which pays for all of the social spending that's in the budget. That is the logic of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether that dollar going in translates to the exactly. number of dollars that they expect coming out, that is the question of the next few years is figuring out whether any of that works. That's the backbench. We'll be back next week with everything you need to know about the conservative leadership candidates. Stay tuned for that. If you have questions, concerns, rants, you can email us backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. Caroline, where can people follow you for other budget analysis? You can find me on Twitter at North Van Caroline. Uh, that's N Van Caroline, I should say. Uh, and also, I have a column coming out shortly in the Hub. And Marad, where do people follow your mic drop analysis? The logic.co is where I write words. And then M U R E D H E M on Twitter is where I just put feelings. <laughs> Vibes. David, thank you for coming on. I hope you'll come back. Uh, where do people follow your uh, leftist campaign? You can find me at David underscore Mosscrop. And you can find me in uh, Washington Post, where I, I do most of my writing, and, and Jacobin also. Otherwise, you can find me at Home Depot. I'm doing a lot of homework these days. If you want to find me at a local Home Depot, I'd be happy to talk to you about whatever you want. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Althorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you soon. 